Hello, welcome to Asbury. My name is Pastor Mike. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as interviews and special devotionals. We hope these messages inspire and support you as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions or want to have further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking out our website at asburymaitland.org. Good morning again, everybody. And for those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, my name is Chris, and I serve here at Asbury as one of the pastors. Good morning to those of you who are worshiping with us online right now. By the way, can we give God praise one more time for our worship band? Because they did amazing this morning. And again, want to say congratulations to all of our graduates. We're so proud of you and your accomplishments, and we know that God has great things in mind for the future. Uh, Before I dive into my message, I want to invite you next week to attend the farewell celebration that we're going to be having to honor Pastor Mike Luzinski and his ministry with us these past five years. Uh, So it's going to be, yeah, let's celebrate that. It's going to be immediately following the 11 o'clock service uh, around noontime here in the fellowship hall. We'll have a time to honor Pastor Mike, uh, to express our gratitude to him for his five years of ministry, including the full year uh, where he served as our interim senior pastor and just did a fantastic job. And so make sure to join us next week as we celebrate Mike and we pray for him. And we also know that God has great things in mind for his future. Are we okay? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Maybe I won't put my hands together. God, speak to us, Lord, because we, your people, are here and we're listening. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We okay? All right. Maybe I just won't move. What do you think? Should I use a handheld this morning? Maybe. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. We're going to punt this morning. All right. So uh, last week, we began a new sermon series on one of the greatest short stories ever written. Uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth, and we're calling this series Ruth, A Story of Redemption. Uh, Ruth, A Story of Redemption. And the reason we're going with this name is that while there are a number of different themes in Ruth, uh, one of the overarching themes is that of redemption. That, as we pointed out last time, some variation of the word redemption shows up at least 23 times in Ruth. 23 times that at its most basic level, Ruth is a story of redemption. It's a story of how God redeemed uh, a woman and her mother-in-law from a very tragic situation. It's a story of how God redeemed the people of Israel during a turbulent period in Israel's history. It's a story of how God paved the way for Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer who would come to save us from our sin and deliver us from our brokenness. And it's a story of how God continues to work his redemptive grace into our lives to this very day. Now, Ruth is four chapters long, and we're gonna be in chapter two today. If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it up to Ruth chapter two. Uh, Maybe you have the Bible on your phone. You can pull your phone up to Root chapter 2. But before we go to Root 2, what I want to do first, because I know we had some people who were traveling last week, is I want to catch us up to what's happened so far in this story. Uh, You know, sometimes when you're watching a TV show, the narrator will say, previously on this TV show, uh, previously, yeah, you know about this, previously on The Big Bang Theory, previously on Friends, previously on Seinfeld. Well, here's what happened previously on Root. So previously on Ruth, we learned about this man named Elimelech. Can y'all say that name with me? 
Elimelech. Say that name five times fast. Uh, so Elimelech was married to his wife, Naomi, and they had two sons, Malone and Kilion, and they lived in the town of Bethlehem. Now, what does Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? Do you remember? House of bread. And yet there was a time in Bethlehem's history when the house of bread had no bread because of a famine. And so this man, Elimelech, uh, along with the rest of his family, they made the tough and difficult choice to leave Bethlehem, to leave the promised land, to leave behind everything they knew and loved, and to journey to Moab, which was just outside of the promised land. Uh, we got Moab up here on the screen. You can see Moab's proximity to Bethlehem, not too far away. Now, this was a controversial decision for a couple of reasons. Number one, as we talked about last time, the Moabites were the descendants of an incestuous relationship that had taken place between Lot and one of his daughters. We read about this in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 19. Lot was a nephew of Abraham. Abraham, as you may remember, he was the father of the Jewish people. Well, Lot had gotten drunk, got into a cave with both of his daughters. He had had a relationship with both daughters. They both got pregnant. The one daughter gave birth to a child named Moab. And from Moab, the Moabite people came. So they were the offspring of this really horrific, unholy relationship. And then number two, the Moabites would worship a bunch of false gods, pagan deities, and lead the people of Israel astray into worshiping these false gods. And so there was a tense relationship between the people of Moab and the people of Israel. And then to make matters worse, once this family got to Moab, uh, this patriarch of the family, Elimelech, the, the father, the husband, he just dies. We don't know how he died. We don't know what manner he died. All we know is that he passed away, leaving his wife a widow. But at this point, she still had her sons. And so these two sons got married to Moabite women, which I'm sure Naomi was not thrilled with. She would have preferred that her sons marry Israelite women, but she probably thought to herself, hey, I'm gonna have grandchildren one day, so it's all gonna be okay. But then after being married to these women for 10 years, painful, childless years, these two sons passed away, leaving Naomi without any husband, without any sons, without any grandchildren, nothing but two Moabite daughters-in-law. This is not how she pictured her life going. And so Naomi is in Moab with her daughters-in-law, and then she hears this report that there's food back in Judah, that the house of bread again has bread. So she decides to go back there with her daughters-in-law in tow. But then on the way to Bethlehem, she tries to dissuade them from coming with her and for their own good, because she knew that if they were to go to Bethlehem, they would basically be committing themselves to a life of perpetual widowhood, that the prospects of them getting remarried in Bethlehem were slim to zero. And so Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, listen, go back to Moab, go back to your gods, go back to your families, go get remarried. You have your whole lives in front of you. The one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she's dissuaded. She goes back to Moab. We never hear from her again. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, whom this book is named after, she refuses to leave. She commits herself to Naomi, but in a bigger sense, she actually commits herself to the God whom Naomi worships. She has this beautiful line in Ruth 1, you might remember it, where she says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. In other words, Naomi becomes a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. She gives her life over to this God. And so Ruth chapter one ends with Ruth and Naomi, they come into Bethlehem. They're followers of God, they're committed to God, but they're also brokenhearted. They feel as if God is against them. They have no idea what the future holds or where their next meal is gonna come from. So that's what happened previously on Ruth. Now we come to this week's episode of Ruth, Ruth chapter two. Listen with me carefully. 
to what it says here in the opening verse. So Ruth and Naomi, they're now in Bethlehem. This is what happens next. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now I wanna pause here before we go any further. In last week's message, we talked about this concept of leverate marriage. Uh, basically what would happen thousands of years ago in Israelite culture is that if a man died, leaving his wife without any children, then the brother would step in, marry the widow, have children with her. Those children would carry on the name, not of the guy who was actually their biological father. Instead, those children would carry on the name of the late brother. And this way also the woman would be protected uh, and her well-being would be ensured. And so the issue was Naomi only had two sons and what had happened to both of her sons? Well, they were both dead. And so Naomi had no other sons to give her daughter-in-law Ruth. However, and this is really important, there was a provision in leverant marriage that if no sons were available, another male relative could step in and fulfill this obligation. And what does it say about Boaz in this opening verse? Listen again to what it says here. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. Let's read this next part together. Who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Do you see where this story is going? That God's redemptive purposes are starting to unfold. And so this is what happens next. This is Ruth 2, verses 2 and 3. One day Ruth the Moabite, and by the way, you'll notice this when you're reading Ruth. Oftentimes Ruth is described as the Moabite again and again and again, emphasizing the fact that she's technically an outsider. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, in addition to leverant marriage, there's another aspect of Jewish culture that comes into play here. The law of Moses stipulated that wealthy landowners were not to harvest their entire field, but instead they were to leave a portion of their field unharvested so that those with nothing would have something to eat. I'm gonna say this once more. The law of Moses stipulated that wealthy landowners were not to harvest their entire field, but instead were to leave a portion of their field unharvested so that those with nothing would have something to eat. Think about this. This was a day without food banks, without stimulus checks, without government assistance. And so this was a necessary safety net for the most vulnerable of people. Uh, this is how the book of Leviticus talks about this law. This is from Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And so this is God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Lead them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord, your God. What was Ruth? Well, number one, she was poor. She literally had nothing, but what else was she? She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite living in Israel. And so she fit both of these categories. And so one day Ruth says to her mother-in-law, hey, I'm gonna go harvest in somebody's field, knowing that this law was in place. And the field where she happens to go harvest, and let's be clear, folks, there were a lot of fields in Judah where she could have gone to, but the one field where she happens to go harvest is none other than the field of Boaz. This idea was not put in her mind by her mother-in-law. She went there all on her own. It is none other than the field of Boaz, this man who has the ability to step in, marry her, have children with her because of leverant marriage and how leverant marriage worked back then. 
Folks, we have to be clear. This is no mere coincidence. This is God behind the scenes orchestrating all this, arranging all this, setting all this up. Uh, I got this quote I want to share with you. I think it's really good. Somebody once said that coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. Isn't that good? Coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. That what you and I might see as a nice accident, a random turn of events, is actually the work of Almighty God. And actually, the writer of Ruth tells us that God is the one doing all this when he uses this phrase in verse 3. And as it happened, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And as it happened, here's what we might say today, as chance would have it, or as luck would have it. Only folks, this was not chance, and it wasn't luck. It was the work of Almighty God. This was God behind the scenes. God does some pretty amazing things behind the scenes. In fact, as I was working on this message, I came across a story about this gentleman. Uh, he lives in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, he's a pastor. Uh, he's pastors at a church called Revival Tabernacle Church. He founded this congregation about 30 years ago, Revival Tabernacle Church. Uh, Revival Tabernacle Church has a really interesting history because the church meets in a building that at one point, what do you think this building was before it was a church? It was a movie theater. Only folks, it wasn't any ordinary movie, movie theater. It was the flagship XXX movie theater in that community. Some of you are wondering where this story is going, amen? It was the flagship XXX movie theater in that community where people would go to watch adult entertainment. I can see that I now have your attention. In fact, Pastor Tim says that when they were in the process of converting the building into a church, people would come in wanting to watch a movie and they would ask when the movie started and he would say, the movie started on Sunday morning, make sure that you join us. <laughs> Knowing that he was actually inviting them to attend a church service. But uh, one time, Delena says he was preaching at the church's Tuesday night service. So in addition to Sunday services, they had a service on Tuesday evening. And as he was preaching, there was this guy who was sitting in the very front row and he had never seen this guy before. And as he was speaking, he could tell that this guy, he seemed nervous, maybe agitated. He was just really animated during the message. He was fidgety, he was moving around. And Delena was getting nervous because he wondered, is this guy dangerous? Is he threatening? Uh, do we have to call security on him? Well, then much to Delena's surprise, toward the end of the service, he invited people to come up to the altar and to commit themselves to Jesus Christ, to give their heart and their life over to Jesus Christ. And this guy stood up and he went to the altar and he did that. He became a Christ follower. And so afterwards, Delena approached him and he said, hey, I I'm wondering, why were you so animated during my message? And the guy said, well, let me tell you a story. Today's Tuesday. On Friday of last week, just a few days ago, I graduated from a program in another state that seeks to restore addicts. My addiction was a sexual addiction. I used to come to this movie theater all the time. I wasted so much of my life here. And so I'm in this program in another state. Meanwhile, your church acquires this property and they turn this building into a church. I had no idea that this building had actually become a church. So I finished the program on Friday. The program was a whole year. While I came back to Detroit, today's Tuesday, this morning I was feeling the urge to go back to my old life, to go back to my sin. So I come into this building and I sit down and I'm expecting to watch a movie. And instead of all things, I have you preaching at me, telling me that God loves me, 
reminding me that God isn't done with me yet, that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. I had come into this building for the wrong reasons, and yet in some mysterious way that I don't fully understand, God made sure that I got right where I needed to be. God does some pretty amazing things behind the scenes, doesn't he? And folks, let's be clear about something. In working behind the scenes, God doesn't take away our freedom. God never for one moment takes away our free will. God never takes away our ability to make choices, but God does take our free choices along with whatever else has happened to us, and God uses these things to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Philip Yancey, uh, he actually inspired the series that we recently did on prayer. Um, well, he writes that in many ways, he has this great analogy. Philip Yancey says that in many ways, God is like a grand chess master. How many of you like to play chess? Dennis Stevenson, I know you do. You're part of the chess group that meets here at the church during the week. Well, when you're playing a game of chess with somebody who is good, somebody who's a master at the game, somebody who really knows what he or she is doing, it really doesn't matter what move you make, does it? You could take your bishop and you can move your bishop over here. You could take your queen and you can move your queen over here. It really doesn't matter what move you make because in the end, the chess master is gonna take your move and use it to his or her advantage. Dennis, am I right as I say that? In the end, the chess master is gonna take your move and use it to his or her advantage. Folks, here's what I'm trying to say is that God takes our moves. In other words, God takes our free choices. God takes whatever else has happened to us, a divorce, a job loss, a death, a tragic accident. God didn't necessarily cause these things, but God can use these things. Nothing is wasted in God's economy of grace. God takes our moves, he takes our choices, he takes whatever else has happened to us, and he uses these things to accomplish his redemptive purposes. We see that truth unfold in the story of that man who went inside that building thinking that he was gonna watch an adult movie, but instead he was in a church service hearing about the love of God, and we see that truth unfold in the story of Ruth as Ruth makes her way into Boaz's field, not knowing who Boaz was, that Boaz had the ability to marry her, provide her with children to redeem her in her tragic situation. But there's another side to all this that we need to recognize. That while God is the chess master, God doesn't call us to be passive in what God is doing to redeem something. God doesn't call us to take a back seat to do nothing. Instead, God calls us to prayerfully recognize God's redemptive work, and by grace, join God in these efforts. God is the chess master, but God doesn't call us to be passive in what God is doing to redeem something. Instead, God calls us to prayerfully recognize God's redemptive work, and by grace, join God in these efforts. And so what I'm going to do in the rest of this message is I'm going to explore this truth as we find it illustrated to us in the rest of Ruth 2. So going back to the story, Ruth is in Boaz's field. She's harvesting. She's doing what a poor person and a foreigner is entitled to do. Well, whose attention does Ruth eventually catch? She catches the attention of Boaz, the man who owns this field. This is what it says in Ruth 2, verses 5 through 9. Then Boaz asked his foreman, in other words, the person who supervised the workers, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? He's wondering, who's she married to? Who's her husband? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go into any other fields. 
stay right behind the young women working in my field, see which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. And so in these few verses, we start to learn more and more about the character of Boaz. Uh, Boaz, of course, he's wealthy, he's well-connected, he's influential, everybody knows who he is. But not only that, Boaz is also a good man. He is a good man with a strong sense of morality. For example, when he asks the foreman who Ruth is, and he tells her uh, that Ruth is a foreigner, or he tells Boaz that Ruth is a foreigner, he doesn't talk to Ruth as a foreigner. What does he call Ruth in this passage? He calls her my daughter. He speaks to her as family. But not only does Boaz speak to Ruth well, he also treats her well. He basically says to her, I wanna make sure that you don't go into anybody else's field. I want you to only harvest in my field. Now listen, if you were a harvester back then, if you were a poor person, a foreigner, you would wanna to go to as many fields as possible so that you could get as much to eat as possible. So by telling Ruth to stay in his field, that's Boaz's way of saying, I'm gonna make sure personally that you always have enough to eat. And then he also says to her, I have told the workers in my field not to pick on you, to treat you well. Folks, imagine what it was like back then, not just as a woman, but as a foreign woman, being around a bunch of male workers. The cat calls, the grating comments, maybe even inappropriate touching, unfortunately. Boaz says to Ruth, I'm gonna make sure that you are looked after. I'm gonna make sure that you are protected. This is a good man with a good sense of morality, and clearly he likes Ruth. Clearly he's interested in Ruth. But listen, he's not interested in Ruth because of something shallow and superficial, like her looks, or what she looks like on the outside. Instead, he's attracted to Ruth because of what he sees in her heart. Listen to what he says here in verses 11 and 12. I also know, Boaz says, about everything that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So in other words, Boaz is impressed with Ruth's character. He likes what he sees in her heart. And so what happens next in the story, and you can read this on your own in Ruth 2, is it's lunchtime. They're taking a break from their work. And Boaz invites Ruth to sit with him, to have a meal with him. In some ways, we might even say that this was their first date. They have a great conversation. When the meal is over, he gives her all these leftovers. She has a doggy bag to take home. But then what happens next is she goes back into the field and she works for a few more hours. And then as she's leaving, not only does she have all those leftovers from lunch, but Boaz gives her anywhere, the Hebrew is kind of ambiguous, but he gives her anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain. It must have been a pretty strong as she walked back home carrying all this grain, 30 to 50 pounds of grain. So just imagine the look on Naomi's face. So Ruth has been gone all day. Naomi has no idea where Ruth has been. She's walking back home. Naomi sees her from the distance. She's carrying all this grain. Naomi can barely contain her excitement. Ruth approaches Naomi and Naomi says to her, where have you been all day? Where did you get all this food? And the way the response is set up in the Hebrew is that Boaz is actually the very last word that comes out of Ruth's mouth. So Ruth is telling Naomi what's been going on, and we could just picture Naomi, she's nodding her head, and she's saying, uh-huh, 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 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. The anticipation is building. The excitement is building. It's like the movie Grease. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And then finally, Ruth says Boaz. And when Ruth says Boaz, we could just picture Naomi. She jumps up. She has all this excitement. This is what she says in verse 20. May the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he, and by the way, the he here is ambiguous. Is it talking about God or is it talking about Boaz? We're not really sure. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Did Ruth know who Boaz was? No. But do you know who did? Naomi did. Naomi knew exactly who Boaz was. Naomi knew exactly what Boaz could do for them. And so folks, Naomi recognizes what God is putting into motion to redeem this tragedy and everything Naomi does going forward. And we're gonna see this next time as we look at Ruth three and Ruth four. Everything Naomi does going forward is about joining God by grace in this work. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're called to prayerfully recognize what God is already doing. God is always going ahead of us. What God is already doing to redeem something and then by grace, partner with God in this work. That's what Naomi did. Let me tell you about somebody else who did this as we wrap up this message. His name is Paul Herbert. And we got a picture of Paul Herbert up here on the screen. Paul Herbert is a judge, serves as a judge up in Ohio in Franklin County. And back in 2008, uh, Judge Herbert, by the way, is a follower of God, he's a Christian. So back in 2008, he decided to read the book Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I know that some of you have read that book before. It's a great book. So he reads Purpose Driven Life and he begins to pray. God, what is the purpose of my life? How can I join you in what you are already doing to redeem people's lives? Well, then one day his prayer was answered. He's sitting down in his courtroom and this woman comes in and he looks at her paperwork and he sees that she is charged with prostitution. And he looks at this person and he says to himself, this is not a criminal. This is a victim of domestic violence who has been forced into prostitution. So then he began to do some research on the criminology of prostitution, and he came across some really disturbing statistics. Like, for example, that 87% of the women charged with prostitution have been sexually abused themselves, usually beginning around the age of eight. And then they take drugs, oftentimes, as a way of dealing with that trauma, processing that trauma. So rather than putting these women in prison where they didn't belong, he decided to start this program called Catch Court. Catch stands for changing attitudes to change habits, Catch Court. And so we got a video I want you to check out uh, that talks more about this program. Take a look. start catch court. I was in arraignment court one day and we had a record number of domestic violence cases. And I got to see all the abuse. The hair pulled out, uh, cuts, bruises. The sheriff brought another defendant out, a woman in chains, and she looked like one of these domestic violence victims. And I looked down at the file and it said prostitute. That really struck a nerve. 
I spent a lot of time interviewing the women, finding out what led you here. These women that walk through that door really are victims rather than defendants. Catch Court started in the fall of 2009 and provides the exit strategy out of the lifestyle of being trafficked. It's a two-year intensive probationary period that they enter in voluntarily. We provide housing, treatment, job skills, education opportunities, whatever a woman needs, we provide it for them. It's absolutely changed my life. They drop me into a room of women who have been through the things that I've gone through. They carry me through that fear and through the guilt and the love and we hold each other accountable. They're bright and going to school, getting jobs. They're being reunited with their children and their families. That's been miraculous. It is so humbling to see them blossom. I would not be who I am if it wasn't for him, and not only because of Catch Court, but because of him as an individual, as a person that I get to look up to. I love being in court and being their judge to witness the glory of someone finding who they really are and living it out. It's undescribable. And in my mind, that's what justice ought to be about. Just like Naomi, Judge Herbert was perceptive. He prayerfully recognized what God was already doing, that God had brought these women into his courtroom for a reason. And so rather than throwing the book at them, he decided to be a part of the work that God wanted to do to redeem these women's lives. And so up here on the screen, I got some questions that I wanna leave us with this morning. Where am I called to join God in God's redemptive work? What is God already doing to redeem something? What is God already doing to redeem someone? And how can I partner with God by grace in these efforts. Folks, we are children of a chess master God, a God who ultimately works for our good, but also a God who is committed to using us in the realization of this good. So by grace, may we allow God to use us. May we be a part of God's redemptive work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.